So I think that's the most important aspect in marketing this kind of product where you have to be able to tell a story where the customer can differentiate between everything else they've ever been exposed to in the marketplace and something that is really another class and gives them an opportunity to advance their own performance because they have an instrument that's not going to interfere with their ability to excel. That's Howard Paul, president and CEO of Benedetto Signature Jazz Guitars. He just summed up what marketing a premium product entails, tell people why the product is special, and how it promises to add value to their lives. There are a million great guitars out there. Only a handful are good for me. There would have to be absolutely no scrapes, scratches. Everything would have to be perfectly constructed. The binding, I I would literally go around the binding to see if it's even all the way around. How does it chime and the tones? How does it fit my hand? You know, can I do all my hard maneuvers on this thing? How does it feel? If it feels like a glove, I'd be very tempted. That's Dan Wilson, a guitarist and songwriter, answering my question to what he'd be looking for in a $40,000 guitar. Yeah. We'll refer to him today, though, as DW to not confuse him with well-known jazz musicians who actually share his name. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Howard Paul, president and CEO of Benedetto Guitars. There were three great names in the jazz world who made bespoke guitars throughout the 20th century. Bob Benedetto is the only one left who has continued on and carried the jazz guitar making legacy into the 21st century. This is a story about music lovers passionate about keeping a whole genre of music alive and well in the age of YouTube pop stars. And it's also a story about craftsmanship, obsessing over the details and how making a premium product for the super fans who matter versus the masses is the key to cementing brand loyalty. So let's dig in. Welcome, Howard. I'm so happy to have you on Uncooked today. Thanks for having me, Jacqueline. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. And I love everybody right now listening is going, what do guitars and a marketing podcast have to do? But I promise it's all going to work and it's going to be great. I would love to understand. Let's start with a little bit of your backstory of giving us a quick minute on before you even found yourself at Bendetto. I would love to hear about your love for music and a little background about you. I did not grow up in a musical family, but I had an aunt who left a guitar before she started her world travels, and it was put in my room on the top shelf where I couldn't get to it. So I begged from the age of three until the age of four for access to the guitar. And for my fourth birthday, my parents got me a guitar teacher. Oh, wow. So I started studying guitar at four. And by the time I was about 10 years old, I had been through most of the Mel Bay books and fallen in love with jazz. And so from age 10, I started really seriously, really no other music than jazz from the age of 10. Started playing professionally at 13 and finished high school at 17 and went into full-time performing and teaching. What was it about jazz specifically that made you gravitate to it at such an early age? I was introduced to a 10-year-old savant named Dave McKenzie, who was, when he was 10 years old, he was the best sax player I'd ever heard. So it was really just kids who were 
becoming accomplished musicians, but were bored with popular music at the time. What's interesting about the brand's origin story that everyone should know? Sure. So the first question people want to know typically is what's the difference between a jazz guitar and every other guitar? And jazz guitars didn't really come around until 1922. The guitars that people are most familiar with are folk guitars or classical guitars, and they have a flat top and a round hole, and the bridge is glued right to the top of the guitar. So when you're tuning the instrument, the string tension is pulling on this bridge that's glued to the top. And that's sort of counterproductive to generating the kind of energy and projection that you need to have a musical instrument. So from an orchestral perspective, the traditional guitars that have been around since the 14th and 15th century in their origins were never considered loud enough and projective enough to be orchestral instruments. Just to break it down for non-music people who don't know the ins and outs of making things. You're saying that a guitar that has the bridge glued to it doesn't allow for the vibration that really helps you project the music that you're creating. Exactly. Because of the tension on it, the underside of that top has to be very heavily braced. And so most guitar players go through their entire careers and never learn the physics that make their instrument sound the way it's supposed to sound. And as a result, they fight with these instruments their entire careers because most of them have never really put their hands on a really great archtop guitar or a great classical guitar, for that matter. They're few and far between. Wow. And it takes a little history, and not just in architecture, but in the music that was being played that allowed a particular kind of instrument to grow into a popular instrument and be heard. And for jazz, that came in the 1920s when the first kind of big bands or jazz orchestras were gaining popularity during Prohibition. This is kind of post-New Orleans, and they're in Chicago, and they're, it's Prohibition, so everybody's crammed into a big hall, and they're drinking and dancing, and they're dancing to an orchestra, and the orchestra required the harmonic and rhythmic propulsion of more than just an acoustic bass and a piano. And so the jazz guitar was reinvented based on a violin design and given that arched top and floating bridge and elevated tailpiece in order to make a non-electric instrument loud enough to be part of a jazz orchestra, all beginning in 1922. I really also want to understand and have everybody listening understand, why is a handmade guitar considered superior? So the first part of that is kind of the aesthetic of the instrument. And Robert Benedetto set himself apart from the rest of the guitar industry in the 1970s. He started building guitars in 1968. So you have to kind of harken back to 1922 when the jazz guitar was invented and became prominent in the jazz genre. It was in the Art Deco period. And so what guitar makers did was they took essentially a cello architecture, but with frets, and intended to be played with a pick or a plectrum. And they added all these art deco visuals to it to set it aside from the violin family. 
So when Bob Benedetto started building guitars in the late 60s, like everybody else, his aesthetic for jazz guitar came from all of these great instruments that had been built from the 20s until the 60s. But he felt in professional jazz guitarists that he was willing to listen to, which was unique in the guitar industry, they didn't need all of those extra appointments that made them Art Deco-esque. Mm. They wanted guitars to be lighter and more resonant and louder and perform more evenly. And Bob found that the first thing you do to accomplish that is get rid of all the mass on these instruments oh. that don't belong there. So everything on the guitar that had been chrome and plastic and tortoise shell all became wood as it is on a violin or a cello. Pick up a violin and there's almost no metal anywhere on that instrument. Right. Benedetto guitars started building violinistic jazz guitars. And what guitarists found was that while they didn't look as traditional, there was a sense of tradition hearkening back to the violin family of instruments. And in fact, they were lighter and more resonant and more evenly balanced than all the guitars that had been built up to that point. So Bob Benedetto's one guy, he was like Geppetto leaning over a workbench most of his life. <laughs> it was important if you were a great guitarist not to buy a mass-produced guitar. It was because someone who was building every aspect of those instruments had much more control over the consistency of the end product. Right. And so what you find are a lot of overbuilt items that are clunky and inconsistent sounding, where if it's an independent builder, all the materials are organic and they need to be treated as unique organic pieces of material. Jazz guitars traditionally are the same woods that the violin family of instruments are built from. So it's almost always a maple back that's cut from quarter sawn wood so it can be carved into a thin arched rather than bent and then maple sides to match the back and a hard rock maple neck that won't bend under tension of the strings, a spruce top, which is the stiffest wood and known to man per square inch, but it's also very lightweight. And we buy them almost all from Europe. The maples and the spruces have to be a particular grade of wood from a particular forest. They've got to be air dried, for five or six years before they can be shipped. When we get it, we stick it in a drying room for another five years at 100 degrees and less than 20% humidity. And only after 10, 15, 20, and we've got wood in the back that we bought in 1984, only after a number of years of curing and stabilizing do you want to start scraping away the outer layers of wood and turning it into an instrument. So it's a really expensive material and requires a lot of curing. And then you have to hand carve it because every piece is unique. So most jazz guitarists never own one of these carved instruments. Instead, they use laminated instruments, which are essentially plywood veneers of these materials that are pressed together and formed into an arched shape. So they imitate the architecture of a fine carved guitar, but they don't have the same kind of frequency resonance. They're not as loud or as resonant or have the same kind of sustain or the same timber, 
they're more suited to being plugged into an amplifier than they are to be played acoustically. I got it. I have another question that you're going to think is silly, maybe, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Okay. Do you have to play jazz on a Benedetto? No. And in fact, my newest customer who now has two Benedettos and plays one of them nightly at his hotel, wherever he is right now, is Jimmy Buffett. All right. Um, So uh, Peter Frampton owns a couple of Benedetto guitars. A lot of famous rock and rollers own them. A couple of folk players own them. A number of celebrity customers own them. It's the same six strings with the same tuning as any other guitar. What's unique about these instruments is they tend to be a little bit bigger and they tend to be by design better to hear from the audience's perspective than from the player's perspective, right? Just like a violin, Mm -hmm. the violinist isn't getting the best of that violin. It's the person sitting 30 or 40 feet away in the front row as the sound travels out. And so you tend to hear people who play folk and rock music, they want the immediate responsiveness of their instrument as opposed to their audience to get the best immediate responsiveness of their instrument. I think it's interesting in what you just said. It's almost like the jazz guitar and the Benedetto specifically is a selfless instrument. It's for the people. It's not for the player. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Well, I'm all about truth, Howard. That's what I do. (laughs) That's what I do. Okay. Just like in the Blackwing Pencil episode a few weeks back, this is not about giving you a lesson in making guitars, although the process sounds incredibly cool. It's about hearing from brand people truly passionate about their work. Howard didn't start the company, and he doesn't cure the wood or carve the guitars himself, but he doesn't have to. He embodies the brand and everything it represents because he was already a brand fan and a musician seeking a fine instrument. When Howard visits universities and speaks to music students about the history and architecture of jazz guitars, his excitement for the instrument he's holding comes through. And whether or not those students ever buy a Benedetto, you can be sure that they'll be excited to share what they know the next time jazz guitars come up. The first step to brand loyalty is to be memorable. Next, I bring into the conversation two musicians I've had the good fortune to know. Jonas Brown is in high school and he's in a classic rock cover band. The other is DW, who's been a lifelong guitarist and songwriter. While there's decades between them, they both remember the exact moment they were drawn to the guitar and how hearing jazz for the first time made them feel. Let's start with DW's story. My neighbor had a guitar and I used to go over there for not the sole purpose, but that was a good reason to go over there and try to figure out what I could on it. There were a couple boys there that were my age that we used to hang out with all the time. Mm -hmm. But they happened to have a guitar that those guys never touched. And for some reason, I just couldn't put it down when I was over there. I had no idea. I had no inkling that I was going to learn how to play guitar. I was just playing around with it and seemed to enjoy doing that. And then at some point, I had to really lobby hard to my parents to get a guitar. I'm number five of six boys, and we had a very small house, Mm -hmm. and there were no instruments played in the house. Okay. And there wasn't any, nobody really wanted to, as far as I knew, except me. Mm -hmm. I eventually got one cheap one. I still have it. Yeah. Great guitar. For like sentimental value or just... $200. That guitar 
I played all over the place with that thing, all over Boston and New York and points in between and Toronto. And that was like my workhorse gig guitar. My stuff was kind of fairly esoteric. That's one of the reasons I left Boston. Boston is very strictly folk. If you're outside the bounds, you're out. New York was much more accepting of different okay. styles. You know, I got played on the radio, university radio, and did some radio cool. interviews and, and things like that. So when you were playing at this point, was that solo or with a group of people? Mostly I was playing solo just okay. for practicality reasons. And logistically, I was writing mostly the stuff on my acoustic guitar. And then eventually I did get different bands together over time for recording or playing out purposes. What was the brand of the guitar that you used then? It was uh, an Alvarez Yairi, which is an extremely well-made, Japanese-made guitar that some people swear by these things. I remember I paid $200 for mine back then, but people like Crosby, Sills, and Nash would use, David Crosby, I remember he would use them. Ani DeFranco was faithful user of Alvarez Yeris, and there was mm -hmm. a lot of other people that loved playing them, and they were just these great little cheap guitars. Thank God I found that one in this little dumpy music shop outside of Buffalo. So but that was the brand, because yeah. I, there's no way I could have afforded the nicer ones. Yeah. That wasn't happening. Now, what made you buy a jazz guitar? I really got into, in high school, I got into the 1920s jazz players like Eddie Lang and Carl Kress and Dick McDonough and guys like that. A buddy of mine in high school had a record, a vinyl record of their playing. He was like, you got to listen to this. I put it on. I was like, oh my God, what are they doing? You know, this was not rock and roll where I, I kind of knew the structure and kind of knew what they mm -hmm. were doing. These guys were like, doing crazy stuff on guitar and how is it that nobody knows who these guys are everybody knows who eric right. clapton is or right. jeff beck or jimmy page like these guys were monsters and i was like wow this is incredible i don't know any of this stuff but i try to figure out stuff here and there and a jazz guitar has a particular they're smaller and they're thinner they're hollow body they tend to have arch tops mm -hmm. and f holes like the benedettos mm -hmm. and they tend to be have a higher pitch and a bark to them. So when you when you play them aggressively, they kind of bark. And that's done on purpose because the guitar has to get through the sound of all the other instruments on the bandstand because they didn't plug them in. And the guitar needed to have more higher frequency to it to kind of break through all the other instruments. Now, if I were a jazz guitar player, something like a Benedetto would be the absolute top of the line pinnacle of quality. No, why do you say that? Because number one, the woods they pick. He's going to be picking, going through tons and tons of luthier supply shops and wood suppliers. And he's going to be taking the woods and tapping them for tone and looking at the grains really closely. And whereas a, a bigger producer doesn't have the time economically, it just doesn't make sense right. for them to do that. They need to push units out the door and they're they're decently made but this is like artisanship quality but the different types of woods they're using today versus what they used to use just the variety of woods and the variety of tones has just opened up this it's like a little renaissance in luthiership and benedetto is definitely a big part of that and the craftsmanship and maybe the corners that were cut at gibson because they had to mm. they're clearly not being cut at benedetto and they're not too flashy they're gorgeous, but they're not flashy. That's yeah. the one thing that I always like about a really well-made guitar. They're not relying on kind of aesthetic appointments to sell. 
their fretboards are black. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Just the way I like them. There's yeah. no dots or inlay on them and just really classy looking instruments. And just the handcrafted aspect of it, you're just going to get a better instrument. Here's Jonas, the 17-year-old who started playing guitar at age 11. He talks about his start and the important influence of his music teachers. I started on piano when I was five years old. And then I played from piano from five to 10. But I didn't like it. Like, I didn't practice. I played, the, my teacher would say, practice. You know, why aren't you practicing this? And then by the time I was 10, I saw someone play the guitar. And I was like, wow, you know, it's so much better than the piano. And then I, I went to, to guitar. And along the way, I've picked up more instruments, but it's really just been piano, five to 10, and then guitar from 11 to now. My first guitar, I still play it. It's right on my chair in my room, is my Yamaha, like beginner acoustic guitar. And then I bought this Squire, which is like a, a subsidiary of Fender. You get a guitar, amp, gig bag for $180. So I played on that for two years. So you have an arch top. Mm. So what made you get that versus a regular acoustic? So the arch top, I guess it's like, you know, the guitar you would use for jazz. And my favorite genre, although I'm in this classic rock band, is jazz. And so you have the acousticness, but it, yeah, it's, it's the tone, it's the sustain. Yeah, the tone and timber. And it's, it's a lot different than the solid body electric guitar, which you'd use for rock, bluegrass, country. You're 17. How did you come to love jazz? It was my guitar teacher. I mean, I really started on rock and punk, and I listened to what my dad listened to, but my guitar teacher was a jazz guitarist by heart. And just the things he taught me, it was like, it was just a whole different level of music. And there's so much more improv and so much more feeling. And, you know, when you can't, when I'm not a singer, all of the things they teach you in jazz improvisation is almost like singing. All the different, like even the way you look, swing the notes and the way you connect the notes, if you connect them on beat or off beat and all these different things you can do to make it sound so evocative compared to rock, which is, in my opinion, a lot of distortion, sustain and, and melodic. In jazz, it's important to have dissonance, you know, balance dissonance and dissonance and consonance and just all these things together. It's what I really enjoyed playing. How did you find yourself at Benedetto? When I came out of the army, got a day job working for a steel corporation and worked my way up to vice president of that company. But the whole time I was gigging about 150 to 200 nights a year while I was holding down this steel company job. So I had already learned the discipline of the military. I learned the business of running a company with three or 400 employees. And I was playing guitar full time again. And it was the first time that I was able to afford a custom-made instrument. So mm. I've been playing Gibson guitars up to that point my whole life. And one of my idols was a Benedetto artist. He came down and played a jazz festival with me. He introduced me to Bob Benedetto. I ordered my first Benedetto guitar. This is back in 95 or so. And it was back then, it was a two and a half to five year wait to have Bob Benedetto make a guitar for you. Oh, wow. And the cheapest guitar he made was easily three or four times the most expensive guitar I'd ever owned in my life. Mm. 
but I was making money and I was serious about it. And I knew they were the best in the world. He was one of the three great guitar makers in the 20th century. And the other two were gone. So Bob Benedetto was the one guy you could go to and have the finest guitars available in the world and have it still made for you rather than made for somebody else. So that's how I wound up with Benedetto and I was his customer and eventually I became one of his artists. And then in 2006, he asked me if I would be interested in being his business partner. So I quit my day job working for the steel distribution company and convinced my wife that this was better than a dream come true. I had never really imagined running a jazz guitar company that was making the guitars that I was married to uh, for my whole life. So it was just a great circumstance that presented itself. Howard went on to say that Bob Benedetto was making 12 to 15 instruments a year back in the day, working a 15-hour day in a lead time that could have taken a few years. Today, there's about an eight-month lead time for a Benedetto, making about 120 to 150 guitars a year. That's the maximum amount of guitars that can be built without jeopardizing quality and doing harm to the brand. Howard admits this is not a scalable business, but you know what? He's okay with that. I would love to understand. So we talked a lot about Bob Benedetto. We Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the history and how you got here. I really want to know what is Howard's stamp going to be on the Benedetto legacy? That's a great question. My, it's not a vision. It's just an understanding I have that just like Gibson has been around since 1902 and Martin has been around since the late 1800s, Benedetto should be around a hundred years from now. And it should have the same reputation that it has today. It should have the same kind of focus and consistency of quality that it has today. And while there are probably ways to grow the company and do spinoffs of the company None of those things, in my opinion, will help maintain the integrity of the brand 50 or 100 years from now. And that's what I'm concerned with. It's unheard of that a independent jazz guitar maker can retire or die and the company continues without them without changing the quality and the love of the brand. And that's what I'm trying to do with Benedetto. And it's hard to do if you're not the founder and it's hard to do if you're not the builder. And Damon Milan, I think he's a young guy in his mid thirties and maybe the most talented guitar maker in the world in terms of making jazz guitars today. And we want him to get credit for that, but he's building Benedetto guitars and he's building them to the consistency and quality and with the aesthetic that Bob Benedetto had in mind. And so it takes a selflessness on his part. Yeah. You know, he's got to be compensated for it, but it takes a selflessness to understand that role and have that same vision as it does with the guys that work for us. And while there's some turnover, because a lot of guys will come here after going to a Luthery school, a guitar building school, and then they'll come here because they want a stepping stone to their career. 
a lot of them are just thrilled to be a part of this kind of company and building the quantity. And another aspect of that, by the way, is my guys work Monday through Thursday, four 10-hour days. Friday, the doors to the factory are open and they can come in, build their own guitars, build a Benedetto guitar for themselves, do repair work on somebody else's guitar. It's expensive to have the toolings and the workbenches and the computer numerically controlled tooling machines and the, the spray booths for nitrocellulose lacquer. You can't just set that up in your garage. Right. And these guys, they love building guitars or they wouldn't be in this industry. Right. So we give them an opportunity to come in here and build their own instruments or build a Benedetto guitar that they can keep for themselves. And we just charge them the cost of the materials that they're using from our materials. I love that. That's a big part of kind of maintaining that ethos in the company. And we want our customers to understand that. So Howard, again, thank you so much for being my guest. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to get to know you and your work and seeing how this is going to unfold in terms of the Benedetto legacy and making sure that you're preserving the spirit of that. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. All right, listeners, this is some serious stuff. This is live right now. (laughs) Impromptu, Howard Paul is giving a little bit of a concert here on Uncooked. What I find inspiring about this brand story is that while the brand is rooted in a strong founder, the success and legacy of Benedetto is really up to the new people placed at the helm. I've seen firsthand how brands can struggle when they have a strong founder story because they think they need to actually do something with it rather than just let it be. Whether the founder is still engaged or long gone, you can't ignore that part of the brand because it's their fundamental raw truth. It's part of the DNA already. Don't be that brand who concludes that the origin story is no longer relevant because there's a new C-suite who wants to, quote, take the brand in a different direction. Don't. Don't be that brand. Secondly, when we talk about brand love as marketers, we're talking about creating a brand that is truly unforgettable, like deep in your bones unforgettable. Benedetto cares enough to hire the right people who are passionate about creating stunning instruments that are owned by few and loved by many. That's the holy grail of branding right there is being a fan and not even owning the product. And finally, Howard pointed out while we were talking that during this pandemic, there's not a single professional jazz guitarist on a major stage anywhere in the world right now. So if you'd like to show support, visit Benedetto.com, find their featured artists and seek out their music for purchase. They'd really appreciate it more than you know. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. You can learn more about what we do at brandcrudo.com. I want to thank Howard Paul from Benedetto Guitars. You can view their stunning instruments and listen to really cool music on benedetto.com. I also want to thank my contributing musicians, DW and Jonas Brown, for letting us in on their passion for music. If you'd like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this episode. It's the only way the podcast reaches new people. Not my rule, it's Apple's. A quick 60 seconds is all it takes, and your feedback would mean the world to me. Thanks so much for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.